Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Welcome to this episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast. On today's episode, we are talking to Declan Murray of Willis Towers Watson. Declan is the marketing business partner and has spent eight years with Willis Towers. And we are talking today about all things marketing in the insurance industry. Good morning, Declan. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Insurance Brokers podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. So we've had lots of offline conversations, all things marketing, and I thought it'd be a really interesting chat really to talk about the type of support that Willis Towers Watson gives their brokers, uh, what your experience of marketing in our industry is and what kind of challenges often come up and uh, whether we can, you know, collectively uh, give the listeners any kind of easy tips and advice on how they can boost their own marketing uh, departments. So um, I wonder if you want to give us a bit of a background about where you are, how you've got to where you are in the last eight years in, in Willis Towers. Yeah, of course. Um, happy to do so. So I've, I've been with Willis Towers Watson Networks, predominantly working with network members across the northern regions, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And my role is really about providing a holistic marketing consultancy service. And that's really looking at what a network member wants to do to grow their business and how they go about achieving it. And one piece of advice I give any any broker looking to adopt a marketing approach is to be realistic and to understand that it takes time to go to where you want to get to, if that makes sense. Um, quite often there is a an illusion or perhaps a disillusion that by doing a, an individual marketing campaign, the funds will jump off the wall with the, the, the vast responses you get. And the reality is that that doesn't happen. It might happen if you're a uh, marketing Budweiser and on a Friday you tell everyone on Facebook that Budweiser's half price. You will probably see a big uptake in sales over the weekend, but that's a very, very different type of marketing. When we're looking at insurance marketing and financial services in, in general, you have to understand it's a different audience. It's a different buying process. You're effectively working around a one day of the year target, and that's when somebody's renewing. So all your marketing, in essence, is, is targeted at, at a one-day event, and all the work that you put in is, is focused on that. And again, going back to the point I made at the very beginning, all your marketing should be realistic. And, and once you have a, a realistic expectation, it's very, very easy then to start looking at various ways and means that you can implement marketing strategies and marketing plans and, and bring them to fruition. So I hope that kind of gave you a, a little bit of a, of a flavor of, of what we do. That's, that's kind of the, the theory element of it. Practically speaking, we will work with our network members on putting together an actual plan of activities. And that will often span email marketing so one of our services is a crm system that's that's got e-marketing capabilities in there it's looking at cross-selling it's looking at developing a proposition for your business it's looking at identifying what makes you stand out from the competition 
It's also looking at traditional things like direct mail, telemarketing, more advanced websites, SEO-friendly websites. Uh, social media is the big thing. And have you got a, a, a good presence on social media? Are you actually portraying your business properly on social media? Because that's where everything's happening right now. And going forward, it's going to happen a lot more on social media. And our brokers, and, and brokers in general, need to be prepared for that. Because the decision makers of today may not necessarily use social media as a decision-making tool. But I can guarantee you in 10, 15 years' time, the next generation of decision makers will have been bought up on social media. They will know nothing else other than social media. So we have to embrace it. Um, and, and a lot of the advice and work I give to our brokers is around that. And it's around looking at where you can stand out and create a difference. Because one of the things I tend to find a lot in our industry is, is if you look at different trade groups, for example, or different specialisms or different industrial sectors, and more times than not, there will be some type of group or some type of association on LinkedIn or discussion forum that you can join that's specifically related to a certain industry or sector. There's almost never an insurance representation on there. You'll have lots of accountants, solicitors, lawyers, um, various other professional services on there to talk about their expertise and how they can help this industry and, and, and what they do to support that industry. But almost never is there an insurance representative, which firstly creates a vacuum because there's nobody to give proper advice. And as we know, in these industries, you need proper advice. More times than not, you can't just buy off the shelf. You need somebody to be able to give you good, solid advice. But because nobody's on there, you can very, very quickly join a group or a forum, as long as you know the industry, and create a, a, a digital reputation of expertise and excellence. And how quickly it moves, you know, you could very quickly overnight become recognized as a, as a thought leader or an expert in a particular field. Have you come across this? Because obviously we're in the same field. We do some of the uh, very similar things. One of the things that we found and is the LinkedIn groups, for example, there's, there's loads on property, right? And everybody in those groups are trying to sell to property people, which almost deflects the property people. So you're in there selling, uh, I don't know, unoccupied properties for whatever's going on at the moment, but actually you're selling to accountants and solicitors and blah, 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 all of whom are also trying to sell to the people that have now vacated because they don't want to be sold to. Yeah. I've come across that quite a lot. What's your experience? Uh, yeah, uh, there, there is a lot of that going on and it, it can be difficult to really make a, a success of it because, you know, when you're trying to sell someone to someone who's then going to try and sell something on, you don't have the same connection or connectivity to the actual inclined. And it becomes almost a bidding war as to who can sell it the cheapest. Um, and that's not what this industry is about. Um, you, you know, price proximity is all good, but you need to, you know, you're providing a professional service backed up by years of expertise and that comes at a, at a cost and, and you shouldn't be afraid of that because people are buying from people you're buying under expectation that you know what you're talking about and you can back up 
you know your service so i i get a little bit nervous when when things happen like that and and it's almost driven by price dominance rather than quality of service so i do have a little bit of hesitations around that i think to be able to go directly to the client is better unless and, and a caveat is to say unless you've got good relationships with partners like accounts or legal firms just back on the sort of linkedin groups because they are you know there's there is some value in in even setting up your own LinkedIn groups to provide uh, information to interested interested parties, and I've seen that work very well. But I have seen you know the sort of industry specific LinkedIn groups eventually end up just a sales platform for everybody yeah. to that particular market. So I, I, you know it kind of works both ways. But having said that, we're just uh, doing some work with uh, a client at the moment on a very niche uh, industry that is more prevalent on Facebook than on LinkedIn. And there's a fabulous uh, national group specific to this niche. And, and our opening is, um, I want to do a podcast with everybody on this group. You know, I want to hear about this industry. I want to learn. I want to uh, get more information. And that by itself is a very, very soft relationship opener with no sale attached but it is the start of relationship so so I wholeheartedly agree with you there are the ways it can work just it can also go the other way so it's it's worth checking out the group it can absolutely absolutely just um so the platforms are obviously really really important and the platforms you've mentioned um email marketing seo various social media uh links with sort of big national bodies or associations and and thought leadership articles in those uh, spaces all really really good stuff can you talk to me a little bit about the strategic planning and work that you guys do prior to that and i'll just give you i'll give you an example some of the things we do is we always do a bit of a a sort of a brainstorm at the beginning which is so you want to grow that's great by how much in which verticals all right 10 percent in property development uh portfolios okay great so if we look at an average conversion rate of say one to three percent how many people need to go in the top of your funnel let's find that amount of actual companies and actual people from which we can see which platforms are relevant. So that kind of thinking is often missed in my experience yeah. with businesses, whether it's insurance or otherwise, because that's not, you know, your hat, you've got so many hats to wear and that's one of the hats that falls off. What do you guys do to support brokers in that kind of initial, I want to grow, but I don't know how to direct it? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. Uh, and I'd, I'd always tend to to revert to something that I was taught when I was studying marketing many years ago is that it can be as complex as simple as you want it to be and the approach I always take is to try and look at marketing as three components and that component is your proposition your audience and the communication channels so effectively how you communicate that proposition to that audience what methods you use and then once you well once you get your proposition right, which isn't that hard to do because we all have a proposition. More times than not, in the in 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 our business, we we have a pretty good idea of who your audience is because they will be people either locally based businesses or businesses within particular trade groups. Or if you've got a certain scheme or a specialism, you're going to go after those type of, of audiences. So it's pretty easy to to identify who the audience is. The key bit is actually figuring out what communication channel 
works right for which audience. And it's a, it's a mix. So um, if we're to look at it in a bit more of a scientific way, um, you know, we purchase data, for example, I would say to, to an insurance broker, let's assume they have no idea who you are because it probably won't because you haven't done much marketing. And firstly, let's not look at this as a one-off campaign. Let's look at this as a 12-month project. So we have to assume nil knowledge at the beginning. So what we're going to do is we're going to do some email campaigns to begin to get some brand awareness moving. And let's get your name in front of them so that if, you know, when, when we look at the next element of this campaign, you will at least have some recognition with them. And we'll do a campaign and we, we have various stats as to open rates and click-through rates, which we would deem to be acceptable. And then we'll implement, implement uh, a telemarketing campaign to sit on top of that. And we'll know that the telemarketing campaign could probably, if we're going for 100 leads or 200 leads, it will probably get maybe 10 appointments, 15 if it's really, really successful. So we know those metrics. And then to sit alongside or on top of the telemarketing, we might do a direct mail campaign. So having started with an audience of, say, 500, we will whittle it down to the most expensive element, which will be the direct mail, to probably only 50. But we will have warmed up the rest of them and we will have created brand recognition and we will continue to do the email campaigns because they're cheap and efficient and very quickly to, to deploy. And then next year, having done some of the, the hard work this year in ascertaining renewal dates and, and that critical information, when we do this next year, our whole marketing is going to be a lot smarter because we know when people are renewing so we can target and focus our activities around that renewal date. So again, it's all about being realistic with your metrics. It's all about looking at what you do to create that brand awareness. And that's your email campaigns, that's your website, that's your social media presence. But in order to bridge the brand awareness to money in, so actual generating income, there has to be some direct marketing. And that's always going to be telemarketing, either internally or externally, because you're going to have to speak to them at some point. Uh, direct mail, you know, attending events, arranging meetings, whatever it is. So um, as long as, as, as there's, there's some form of expectation and metric appended to each of those types of communication channels, it, that's when it becomes more successful and realistic. You've touched on something that I come up a lot against. Uh, or it's a question that's often asked to me. Marketing in our industry has got a little bit of a um, fluffy reputation and what I'm often asked and, and you're talking about metrics and that's the way we work as well is how can I tell you that this marketing spend will generate this opportunity or close you know business that's that's converted and I think you're absolutely right there's a process by which you've got to test that but you should always be able to test it nobody should be telling you you need to spend a thousand pound a month and we're not sure what we'll be able to bring in. And I think that has traditionally been a bit of a problem. And you should absolutely be able to attribute a spend to a, to a conversion. What kind of metrics do you guys deem as appropriate? What kind of things should people listening when they're, you know, looking at their marketing spend with whoever it might be? What kind of conversion rates do you deem to be uh, sort of average or, or, or acceptable? Well, I'm going to address the first point you made about the fluffiness. Uh, yes, there is a preconception that marketing is all fluffy and colory and we make lots of nice adverts and that's it. 
the reality is the fluffiness element, if you like, is about 10% of, of the entire marketing mix. 90% is analytics, figures, lots of division, lots of question marks, and lots of testing matrices thrown in. I wish it was more fluffy, but it's not. It is really quite quite numbers-based. So what, what I think metrics-wise and, and looking at, at costs, again, it's a really, really difficult one to try and append on a, on a single basis. And by that, I mean, if I give you an example as to, as to what I mean by that, if you run a TV ad and you've got an 0800 number, you can very easily say, right, we've spent £1,000 buying the, uh, the space for that ad to run during Coronation Street, for example. And it costs us a thousand pounds. It would actually cost you a whole lot more, but just for the sake of, of this example, it costs a thousand pounds to run it. And we got 10 responses. So those 10 responses ended up costing us a hundred pounds per response. The product we're trying to sell costs 500 pounds. So it's a hundred pounds for someone to ring us. But then we know that only 50% of them will actually buy the product. So in actual fact, it's costing us over £200 to get a qualified lead, but we're selling it for £300. So the marketing acquisition cost is almost 50%. So it's not worth doing it because it's too much. It's too expensive. That's, that's a very easy way to you know, measure marketing success. Where you have uh, a service industry, it's, it's a lot more difficult because you do lots of different things to try and get interest and try and get an appointment or an ultimately a piece of business so it's really hard to sort of say right well if we do this one campaign it's going to cost 500 pounds and we're going to get 10 policies sold so we know it works we could do that having not done any marketing prior to it and we might get five leads we could have done loads of marketing in the background we could have done email campaigns we could have connected with them on linkedin we could have spoken to them for two years trying to get an appointment. And then this year we try it and all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're generating a lot more appointments because of all the work we've done. So it's a lot more cost efficient this time to do it. So, you know, the metrics, you have to look at it in the longer term and you have to look at it, I would say probably over three years because, you know, you're not going to generate much in year one. You're going to have a little bit more success in year two. By year three, you should then have done or be generating quite a bit of, of, of business because you'll have established brand awareness. You'll have hopefully have gotten to know the person. So it's it's harder. But if you know if you want to look at it on a strictly cost versus response basis, yes, every year, you know, every campaign you do, look at the number, the amount you're spending, look at the number of responses you're getting from it, measure it, divide one into the other to tell you how much each response is costing you and then decide whether it's profitable or not. But if it's not profitable in year one, don't just write it off because in this business, we renew. You're not going to have the same marketing costs in year two or year three. So again, that's why you need to look in the longer term. I think there's also a strategic piece around it, isn't it? So your customer acquisition cost does reduce over time if you keep the consistency up. But we did uh, some work with a client not that long ago, and they wanted to put some uh, PPC spend into a particular niche. And a very quick look at that showed us that the, the Google searches on that particular niche were about 90 a month, so very low. But some of the big composite markets were already playing at the PPC game in that area. 
that was a very quick search that can tell you you're never going to be able to to match their spend and therefore you're always going to come second down so there's there is there's certain sort of levers that you need to really look at the, the strategic aim before you can kind of jump into to doing all the metrics aren't there i bet you guys get quite involved in that as well absolutely uh, especially around digital uh, and online um, i mean insurance is is is, is number two in terms of the most searched for words in the world, not just in the UK, but, but across the world. So for any anyone who hopes to sort of get to the top of the Google rankings on generic insurance terms, uh, you know, you have to be realistic and say it's not going to happen because number one, SEO is a dark art in itself. You know, we don't truly understand what, what Google does to define a website's worthiness to be in the number one spot. There are common factors, but but we don't really truly know. Number two, you have to have a lot of budget, a lot of resource, and a lot of time to invest in getting your website, you know, up the rankings. And number two, you've got to maintain it, which takes the same amount of budget, time, and resource to do it. And let's be honest, that budget will have many many zeros in it, <laughs> not not two zeros or three zeros, but you're looking at six zeros to realistically try and compete. Now, PPC will will obviously get you ahead of the game because it'll get you advertising. But PPC's conversions, if you know, 70% of people will will click on a, a natural listing ahead of an SEO listing. There is an innate distrust, I think, of, of, of certain PPC advertising because it is, you know, you are paying to be there. So, you know, it's, it's, the conversion rates are a lot lower. Um, and I think, you know, if you've got a, a a particular term you're going after that's got 90 searches a month, then, you know, what's the best you can hope for? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, um, just going back to the sort of innate dislike of being overtly sold to is a, is something that has sort of that change in buying cycles been coming for a long time. And we are very much now in a soft sell let me let me provide you with some really useful really helpful really good information or services or support without asking you for any money and it it, it goes back into the sort of the way you build trust isn't it the old trust equation uh, credibility reliability uh, and intimacy divided by self-orientation the minute that the person you're talking to feels that you're in it for yourself in any which way it's a huge turnoff regardless of how credible reliable or intimate you've been previously and I think that that trust equation is quite a powerful one Um, we do very much like you guys we do some of that strategic analysis initially and we focus quite a lot like you do on the metrics and the numbers you cannot tell me that you want to grow without telling me how, in which, mar- which markets, by what percentage, D- GWP or income, and then working out exactly how many you need to go in the top funnel to, to kind of spit out the bottom. And one of the things that we do quite a lot of work with clients with is, going back to your earlier point of, it's quite easy to identify your audience, but there is a second step to that. So if your audience is widget manufacturers, between a one and five million turnover that sit in location X. Wonderful. Now let's find who 
the names, the actual companies and the actual directors that sit of those companies that fit those parameters in in that particular market. And sometimes um, that's quite a tricky piece of work. It's very time consuming. It's incredibly laborious and it makes you want to remove your eyes with spoons, which is probably why it's it's a sort of stage that we'd rather not go down sometimes. But I think it's a really important piece of work because once you know that it's I don't know, Joe Bloggs of uh, widget manufacturer X, you can start to really understand what his pain points are. And does he sit on LinkedIn? Is he on Twitter? Is he on Facebook? Is he is he likely to sit in front of a laptop? Or, you know, are you looking at haulage drivers, in which case email campaigns is probably not the best way to go down, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole piece of meaty, laborious and boring but very strategic work that needs to go into the sort of the front loading. Do you guys get involved in that with with your clients? Do you do it for them? Do you do it with them? Do you sort of coach? You're you're absolutely right. It is incredibly laborious. The good sort of side to it is, you know, there's obviously data companies who will provide this this information, um, decision makers who who you know sort of commonly accessed. LinkedIn is obviously a very good platform for finding people and actually connecting with them directly. And the more advanced LinkedIn navigation tools will will make that search a lot easier. But it is difficult to do. Um, it is time consuming. But if you look at the time and the cost of doing it and equate that to the opportunity cost of not doing it and sitting on the sidelines saying, you know, it's, it's not worth it. It's too much effort. Well, somebody else is going to do it. And you can be absolutely certain in, in the way the market is right now. You can be, you know, you can be one hundred percent sure that your competitors are doing it, and there's nothing to say your competitors aren't looking at your clients, thinking, "Hmm, I wonder what I can do to um, get in front of these guys." So you have to be ready to, you know, get into the rough and tumble of it, um, and 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 spend that time, or employ someone spend the time to do it. And like you say, there are some really if 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 sort of budgeting spend is a is a marketing spend is an issue, there are some really great tools you can use. So some of the ones that we've come across are you, you mentioned LinkedIn and Sales Navigator. There's a there's a tool called Wizza that links to Sales Navigator, and it's 15 cents per legitimate email that it will charge you. So if you've done your sales navigator search correctly. You can link in with Wizard and you can do, you know, a per email cost of very, very low. And there's all sorts of customer engagement platforms. We use Artesian quite a lot with our clients. Yeah. There's uh, companies like Hunter IO, Rocket Reach, or, you know, for people listening, if marketing spend is an issue and you really want to do some work on this list, highly, you know, recommend you have a play around with some of the these these software tools because, because why would you not? Like you say, your competitors are doing it, particularly the market I say we're going into, but we're, we're fairly well in it now. And I think it's probably only going to get worse over the next few years for a whole host of reasons. This piece of work is really, really important. So we've talked about the audience and we've talked about the kind of strategic planning around that. We've talked a little bit about the proposition. Let's delve on that a little bit more because I find this quite interesting, right? I've spoken to lots and lots of businesses whose proposition is we provide a really personal service. Okay. I also spoke to Simon Johnson, who's the marketing director of Markel uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the things that he was saying their proposition is, which I think is, is, is the way things are going. We provide this personal service. We're, we're, you know, great with claims. We're, and that's the, the standard. 
that's the expectation now. That is no longer your USP. That is what you are expected to provide. I think it's quite difficult, particularly if you are an independent insurance broker and you're sort of, you know, predominantly maybe regionalized, your your SMEs within that location, or you might have a few schemes. But how do you then pull out your USP, your real value proposition, because it can't be any of the expected things? That's now not a USP. So I don't think it's quite so easy to go, you know, I'm great at this, unless, and one of the podcasts I did was with Peter Cullum, and he said, you need to be top three in, in at least one industry. Just find a niche, top three in one niche. So that obviously starts to build in your USP or your value proposition. But how do you do it without that? Okay. I want to begin by saying the service proposition, uh, I've never been a believer in it. It's the easiest thing in the world to say we provide a fantastic service. And my response is, well, you should do because I pay you enough money. Service is, is an expectation. You're absolutely right. It is an expectation. And when I advise brokers about developing a proposition, there's, there's a number of ways you can you can look at how you develop a proposition. You can do a SWOT analysis of your business and particularly looking at the strengths and the opportunities. Then you can begin to carve out a, a, a sort of unique proposition. You can look at what your competitors are doing and ask yourself a very simple question. What are they better at us at? And what are we better at them at? I should ask two questions, not one. But if you can ask those two questions and, and be very honest in the answers, that begins to, to, to craft a, a slightly different way of looking at a proposition, but it's, it's something you can go out and, and really push. But the easiest, quickest ways of developing a unique proposition is exactly what you've said, is to have an area of expertise, an area of specialism, an area that not many people do. Because that will give you, first and foremost, if somebody types in that type of service on Google and and you've got a half-decent website and you've mentioned it in your website once or twice, it will rank pretty quickly because of its uniqueness. So that will get you recognition. And by being an expert or a specialist in a certain field, you join the affinity groups and trade associations appended to that specialism, and that will get you an audience of the very people you're trying to target. Go down that route. That's the quickest way to get yourself a proposition that you can live and die by. I think that's, that's, that's just an expectation, as you said. Yes, what you've said, I think, is absolutely um, really, really valuable. And to people listening, the SWOT analysis and, and the picking, you know, one or two of your biggest competitors and doing that exact exercise is really, really powerful. I just tell you something else that we did once, which... Uh, we've done a few times now that that has also been quite powerful. So one of the things that we did when we we sat down with this particular client that it worked really, really well with is we took the top 20% income generating clients from their book and we, we profiled them, right? At the same time, we sat with all of the sales team. We did just a fun exercise. In your head, pick your favorite client and write their name down and now give me the three things you like about them. Same exercise about your worst client. And what actually came out of that conversation was all of the sales team picked a client in the same industry, which was, I mean, that doesn't happen often, but it was, you know, it was, it did in this particular case. And all of them had something in their likes and dislikes about feeling valued by the client. So when I give you some advice, you really 
run with it versus I've got to call 27,000 times and then they ignore what I've said anyway. And it was just a really, in, and, and then you looked at the top 20% income generating, there's a bit of profiling and, and uh, that we could do there. And it was just, it pulled out such a strong, why is this, you know, go get a scheme for this. This particular area is, is obviously your bag, you know, entirely. Mm. You, you're good at it. You enjoy it. You can see the passion behind it go for it so just you know there's loads of different ways aren't there like little games or 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 exercises you can do that can inform what what you as a business really believe in yeah absolutely absolutely i think i think you know we're probably doing a slight disservice actually um focusing a lot on on a specialism or a niche because not every broker has a niche or specialism or, or doesn't really want to push it and to them, my advice is, you know, service, let's park that because that's that's an expectation. But this is still a people business. And trust, longevity of, you know, relationship, getting people to actually recommend you and, and give you testimonies is, is, is hugely important. One of the pieces of, of advice I give to, to our network members you know, when you're looking to generate new income or, or to acquire new clients is to identify who your key clients are, write out to them and ask them to recommend somebody to you or refer somebody to you. Because what's the worst they'll do? They'll say no if they don't want to. They're not going to walk away and say, I'm never going to do business with you again because you asked me to refer someone. How dare you? That's, that does not happen. OK, it's not going to happen. If you have a good relationship with an existing client, you write to them, say, look, our business is built off the quality of product we provide, the service we give, and the relationships we have. Would you mind recommending someone to us? We'd be very much appreciated of it. And then you might think, well, okay, yeah, I can do that, but I'm going to have to give some incentive and it'll look tacky. I'll have to give them an iPad as a thank you, and it'll cheapen our brand. And it will cheapen your brand doing that. So don't, don't go down to, you know, I'll give you some high street vouchers if you do it, or you might be in with a chance to win an iPad, you know, to the person who's probably got 15 iPads already. They don't really need it. So, so you know, look at doing something like a charity donation to them as a thank you. If you recommend someone to us, we'll make a donation to a charity of your choice. So you get a new client, your new client gets a good service, and your existing client gets a donation made to a charity of their choice. So everybody wins. And it's a very, very simple, effective easy to manage campaign that can be rolled out anytime. You know, some of the best advice I ever got when we first started was from Kevin Hancock of Utree Insurance. And one of the things that he's consistently done throughout his insurance career is look for a way that he can give back to the community. So he's always been part of Bieber or or the CII on various board members, but he's also then developed um, sort of local networking groups for local businesses that's not about selling, it's about supporting. And that links in really well with what you're saying. I love the charity donation idea. You can have that one for free, by the way, but you know. Well, thank you. I'm very grateful. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I think it, it sort of goes hand in hand, going back to the trust equation, sort of giving back, uh, community, personal relationship building. I think it's all really powerful. So I think that's really, really, I'm just, um, what you said at the beginning of proposition audience and and communication is, is along the same lines we work. And I think they are really 
three key elements of marketing. So we've looked at the proposition and, and, and the audience and we've kind of touched on communication. We break communication down into how and what, uh, and we've done the how, you know, what platforms are you going to disseminate information? I'd love to spend just a few minutes, I know I've taken up lots of your time, just a few minutes talking about what, because we do an awful lot of work on the what, as I know you guys do. And what I mean by that is what information are you sending people via the various platforms that you've identified? And it's got to be valuable, informative, non-salesy as a predominant uh, feature, just information for, for supporting that community. How do you work with your brokers to develop that type of uh, communication? Well, firstly, to pick up on something you said just towards the end of that question, non-salesy, that's the key. We're selling, but we can't sell. Okay, we, 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 We're not pushing for sales. We're educating people. And how we educate people is through content. And that content can be physical content. It can be a, a, an, an article. It can be uh, materials. It can be a PDF from you know, various trade sector groups, for example. But it's educating people. It can be video content, talking about a particular product or a particular service or a particular industry and, and educating people as to what, you know, what, what their insurance requirements might be if you're in a particular industry and talking about it. So it's all about educating people. A, a, a simple equation I always use or, or a sort of a, an example is if you're going to make a big buying decision, so you're going to go out and buy a car and you're looking at two choices or two different salespeople, if you like, approach you. And one says to you, right, car is £15,000. Do you want it or not? Right. Chances are you're probably not going to want to buy it because it's just there. It's 15 grand. That's it. Take it or leave it. If another salesman came up to you and said, look, this is, well, first, can I learn a little bit about you? So do you have kids? You know, what ages are they? Let's get to know you. Let's get to know your family. Let's get to know as much as we can about you. And based on what you've told me, I think this would work for you. Uh, it's, it's, it's a choice. Now, I've got a few different choices, but I think this is kind of right where you need to be right now. I think this car fits your fits your needs. Um, and this is what it's going to cost. And we can help with that if you need it. Which one are you going to likely buy from? You're going to buy from the second guy, aren't you? Because he has educated you. He has listened to you. He understands your predicament. And he's trying to find the best solution. Now, there's no reason why you don't transpose that, that approach into every type of business that you market for. Because it's the exact same principles that you use. You have to educate your clients you have to get to know them. You have to understand their businesses. You have to understand the challenges they face. And once you understand all that, you can then provide content and material that's relevant to them. The worst mistake you can do is to be lazy and, and blanket bomb your prospects, your clients with material that's relevant to maybe 5% of them. Because the other 95% will look at it thinking, you don't actually know a single thing about me. You're sending me stuff about risks on a building side and I produce widgets in a factory. Why are you doing this? And it's laziness. And just get to know your audience, whether it's your existing clients who you should know already, but your prospects, get to know them. That goes right back to that ball-breaking work for the audience section that that just needs to happen. Um, Yeah, something you just said there, which I think is, is, is really interesting. 
almost every decision we make as human beings is made by emotion and justified by logic. And often, actually, that's, there's, a, there's an awareness. We're not aware of the fact that it is the emotion that's, that's made the decision because we, we're so busy justifying it by logic. And I think that's an interesting concept that you should be aware of as a salesperson or as a, you know, a business person made by emotion, justified by logic. And therefore, it's absolutely that approach where I feel you've got me. I feel that you care about my needs. I feel like you've understood my problems. You've listened to what I'm saying. And what you're telling me is based on all of that, rather than I hear what you're saying. This is what I've got to sell. And that, you know, that kind of divide is is important. I think that has been really, really interesting, Declan. I love, I love chatting to other uh, marketing people. I always think I learn a lot and hopefully can participate some. So, uh, you know, really, really great. Really loved chatting to you and I'm grateful for your time. That's a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Really enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.